answers are all around us. We just haven't been paying attention. And mindfulness and contemplative practices allows us to pay attention. Wisdom doesn't actually come from consensus. Wisdom comes from the friction between perspectives. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, author of the book Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness, and this is a podcast designed to explore the relationship between mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. This episode, I'm speaking with Jessica Mori and Sharice Minerva, two guiding teachers at Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, or IBME for short. IBME is a nonprofit organization that offers mindfulness programming for youth and also their families and the professionals that work with them. They have a powerful approach to mindfulness teaching, combining traditional practices with social emotional learning and also elements of trauma-informed practice, which is why I thought it would be great to sit down with them and have an interview. Jessica is the executive director at IBME and really grew up within the insight meditation tradition. She started going on team retreats, practice into adulthood, and then eventually helped form IBME, which she talks about in our interview. Sharice is a board member and guiding teacher at IBME who has done a ton of work around mindfulness in a number of different sectors, including schools, prisons, and some Buddhist organizations, and was great to talk to. I interviewed Sharice and Jess on a beautiful Sunday morning, uh, the day after I had the chance to offer a workshop around trauma-sensitive mindfulness to their teachers and training. It was a dynamic conversation and one that I'm really excited to bring to you all here. So without further ado, I bring you Jess and Sharice from IBME. Jess and Sharice, welcome to the podcast. Really happy that you're here. And I just want to start by asking you if you could talk a little bit about um, IBME, Inward Bound Meditation, and just what you're up to for folks that don't know your work. Okay, great. So uh, this is Jess. IBME is a... An acronym for Inward Bound Mindfulness Education. Uh, and we offer meditation retreats for teenagers, primarily and young adults, and also do some work with the parents and professionals who support youth. And so all of it is our kind of internal tagline is secular depth. So really offering a transformative depth of practice and mindfulness and compassion training. And we're here in Concord in Massachusetts where we're recording right now. And you two are in the middle of your teacher training program. I think you just kicked it off. Is that right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about who, you know, who you're training? And Well, this is Sharice, Sharice Minerva. And it's exciting. It's our first retreat. We've just finished maybe our fifth day, which we were so honored to have David do a presentation that totally resonated with what we're doing. Uh, we bring in a cohort. We work with them for a year. They go through three retreats, and we do online, a lot of intensive work. And we give a breath uh, and a bit of depth to what's happening in the mindfulness field. So all these different um, practitioners come in. They already have experience. Many of them are teachers or therapists or even yoga studio uh, owners, and they're getting more depth in the practice and the information of what's going on in the field, so then they can develop their own sense of, how am I gonna bring these practices to the world? So we're not trying to go, we want you to do the IB Me curriculum, 
that's not it. We're using what we've learned to help inform and support their practice. So that's science, that's psychology, that's nature, that's creativity, it's the breath, and it's building community. So when they go back to their communities, they have something to work with. You know, one of the things I saw yesterday when I walked in is I thought, this is a really young group of people. I mean, it's a very mixed group, and it's a wide range of age. And I thought, wow, you're really training a contemporary group of teachers mm-hmm. in, in all that you just named. And, and then, not, this is not selfishly, but I am curious, like, well, why would you have me? Where would it fit in? Or the trauma-sensitive practice, and I'd be curious. I, I see you all as doing work really at contemporary intersections and just got curious about why you would pull that work in and how you think about it. Yeah, well, one thing they were reflecting on last night with a few people was we have you because of you, like because of your presence and the way that you show up and model and embody what you're teaching. Um, and that really came across. Oh boy, I didn't mean for this to be like a plug on, on <laughs> Well, that's, that's the truth. <laughs> and yeah, and so much of what we're about is the embodied, the way that people show up and there's like a faith and a trust mm-hmm. in, in that quality in someone. That's what we look for in our teachers and the mentors who staff our retreats. And I think that's what we kind of felt in inviting you in mm-hmm. to the program. Um, so that maybe being a major part of it, but then also um, that you have really specific learnings and techniques and things that pointers for people to keep in mind in terms of trauma. And as Sheree said, most of our, most fo- many of the folks are public school teachers, many, and in fact, I'd say almost all of them are working with um, some level of traumatized population. I, it's probably just the state of the world in some way, but it, especially young people and we have a lot of people who are coming from low-income communities and um and so they need to know uh they need to be trauma-informed because they're going to be working with trauma and um and then also i think the thing that reading your book that totally got me super excited is the and that you brought in the social justice and the social trauma and the systemic and structural reasons why there's trauma and why people are some people some identities are more susceptible to trauma that's a huge part of what we talk about in our training. And so the way that you bring the, those two together is just like, it, it felt like so right on. And then you don't know this, but so many things that you said yesterday touch into our whole curriculum for, for the year. So you like set it up so that we can just be like, so like, you know, David talked about this study. Oh, nice. <laughs> now we're gonna go into it for 30 minutes or, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wanna add to that. It seems to me that there's been this first wave of mindfulness where we're actually introducing it to the population. And it's kind of reaching that first wave culmination. So now we're at, okay, so what do we do with it? We've seen the realities of, okay, it's not a panacea. And as your book points out, there are things we need to watch out for. And so with this group, that's what we're doing. What's the next phase? How do you use it? How is it practically applied? Let's take it out of the conceptual, the esoteric. When I'm going into a community group, uh, now I understand the person that's sitting there starry-eyed. These are some interventions I can take. Instead of, oh, well, it's supposed to work. It's supposed to work. You're providing practical application for people who are on the road doing the work. That's why, and I think we need more of that. Could we, if we could, could we dig into the practical for a second? I really want to talk about the social 
to mention, especially given that you're both, and IBM is doing a lot of work there. And what, given that I think you're both, um, you're already doing, IBM is already doing trauma-informed work. Like to me, you're both from having met you, you're trauma-informed. And a lot of teachers I meet, they actually say, wow, a lot of this we were already doing mm -hmm. on some level, but it's nice to be really having that conversation. So I'm wondering what, from what I, you know, what we saw yesterday or from you reading the book or um, the curriculum you have, what practices or principles would you say are most useful if you were to give like a top three list to your new teachers around trauma, what would you, what have you found is the most useful and important tips for people to know up front? Uh, what comes, what comes to mind for me, the first is around choice, just as much agency and choice as possible. And this is like, um, this is where I, our whole society feels traumatized in the sense of um, we have a culture that can be a lot about domination and submission and control. And so especially for young people, have they're not trained to feel like they have choice and agency, particularly around adults. So that piece feels hugely important um, around mindfulness and contemplative practice so that people can really find their own way in. Um, so choice, agency. Can you talk a little, even a little, mm -hmm. unpack that yeah. even a little more about how do you how do you help people do that? It makes sense, particularly around youth. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a place that I spent a, mm -hmm. a ton of time, mm -hmm. and I'm learning a lot from your community. So yeah. is it language, or like where are the places that you? Mm. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's language. It's kind of interwoven in. You, it has to be a backdrop. Yeah. Uh, oh, you right. you, you can't script mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, uh, intention mm -hmm. and impact. You have, and, and then it's living because you have to test model it. And if it's not working, okay. And we do that at IBME a lot. Okay, we thought this worked. Let's try it this way. Well, th even in this, we were sitting in the rows normally, mm -hmm. as we do with the teachers in front. And one of the participants said, I think it would be better for us to sit in a circle then I'm not looking at people's backs. We modify mm -hmm. and we put it in a circle. So it's that willingness to be adaptable, to listen to the people and the community you're serving to see what works for them. It's their choice. It's not us coming in and just putting our teaching on top of people, which for the communities I work with, which are generally uh, communities of color, marginalized communities, low-income communities, not all, but even in affluent communities, there's still, you need choice. People are not just one type anywhere. So if you don't go in and learn who's there, how can you even offer choice? So it has to be a way of thinking, a way of acting, a way of moving, a way of creating, that everything is always constant, alive. But doesn't that what mindfulness is about, being aware of that? So we're really teaching mindfulness in a living way, not just in a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I, w that's, I would say that that's like, um, it's, so the step, first step is the, what is the attitude and perspective and approach of the teachers and the staff? And we spend a lot of time talking about that. And so when you, and when we talk about like, okay, what do you do when you notice what quote unquote a resistant teen, 
right? Who doesn't want to do what you want them to do. Step one is, oh, (laughs) notice they're not doing what I want, you know, and what's my relationship to how am I reacting, relating what's going on inside of me that like wants them to be different than they are right now. Yeah. Yeah. I love this because this is one of the things we talked about the first night and it's something I've been really impressed with in this teacher training is noticing the way that you're talking. You're not just driving right to a to-do list or a technique. It's actually, you're, it seems like you're talking more about an approach or a, yes. a what, what's yeah, like what you're what's happening in the backdrop that will inform whatever teaching is there. But you're spending a lot of time also with the view or what this piece around starting with that mm-hmm. as opposed to just okay we need to make sure the lights are on and that we're doing checking all these boxes it seems like it's a real approach which seems transformative for the students that i see in there or the teachers who are in training is that they're training in how to be yeah. as opposed yeah. to what to do yes yeah. yes mm-hmm. and that's hard work and mm-hmm. and you have to use your mindfulness practice to stay there to stay in the room to stay grounded because people may respond in ways that make us uncomfortable, and we acknowledge that. And even in your book, as you talk about moving this out to a social justice arena, we have to realize we're going to be uncomfortable, and we have to learn how to work with that. But imagine working with youth, that if we already instill that in them, how much change we can actually create in society. Mm. It's just huge. And because we're working with all these different arenas of youth, that means all of those communities have youth in them that realize they know how to be uncomfortable, stay there, aware of what's important to them, and are, are verbalize it. So if I'm hearing you both right, you're really focused on the ways that my, you're not just talking about how to teach mindfulness, but how the teachers can use mindfulness in their practice to be more effective. And that's such a that's such interesting terrain. Can you talk any more about how f- how you are teaching teachers to be using mindfulness to be either more trauma-informed, better teachers? Because I think that's such it's such a mm-hmm. that's what you're focused on. Yeah. So again, and so when I, you know, when I said we invited you in because of how you are embodied and how you relate, uh, so that's really the first step. And, and this people p- pick that up. So in my, we do the small group every evening. And in my small group, we debrief the day. And that was what a lot of people named was like just the way that you were in a dyad, you know, showing people things and how you were relating to the person. So much more of that. Are, so I think that's, it's like how we show up embodied as teachers, how we're relating to each other and being really transparent like there's no way that we are in the front of the room or in the middle of the circle <laughs> that's different from how we are when we're in our teacher meeting at lunch. So it's like having a kind of transparent, vulnerable authenticity. And, and we're, I'm always checking, like, how am I right now? Oh, I just got triggered in that interaction with Sharice. Right. Okay, what am I going to do about that? Like, yeah. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do you want, um, given that you named these these social dimensions and the um, uh, the I forget the name of the what you what you were talking about just before the the event that we did yeah the event yeah oh, the four convening the convening mm-hmm. yeah on on youth do you want to talk about your general Justice and mindfulness, and mindfulness? Yeah. <laughs> yeah what's your um, what's your general this is such a big topic and it's partly where we connected was mm-hmm. around. I hear you all doing work not just 
about personal change, but also social change and really making bridges between personal and social change. Do, can you talk about how are you both coming to it? I realize it's a big part of your lives, but w what would you want well, to say here? My history, especially as a person of color, I come through civil rights era. I was brought up in it. My parents were civil rights activists, so my whole life has just resonated with that. That was implanted in me. And this is why I stay with IBME, because I realize IBME has the contemporary agenda of change. And I do believe, if done correctly, mindfulness is the civil rights of our generation. It really is, if done well, if it's not this self-serving, oh, I'm gonna be politically correct, that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just like we go in and we have the hard discussions and the disagreements, and we had this for convening in early in May. We brought in 25 organizations from all over the United States and some from Canada as well, and we, through the process of preparing for it, we came up with five areas of concentration. And then when we got together, we broke into groups and we delved deeply into those areas. And it's interesting because one was on secularization mm. versus secularity. Mm -hmm. So a couple of days ago, I presented to teacher training on that topic. And I actually pulled the executive summary from the convening to present to them, and it resonated. So it wasn't me just coming in, what I had to say. This is a group of people practicing in the field that have brought this down into the essence of what is important. Oh, that's great. C can you, is, uh, just, um, when you say Ford, is that like Ford Foundation? Yes. Uh, I see, okay. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so the Ford Foundation uh, gave us a grant to have a gathering, a convening of youth of youth organizations that are teaching mindfulness uh, wow. and and who have some view or perspective on social justice. So we gather 25 different people from 25 different organizations around the U.S. and Canada who are teaching mindfulness to youth. Um, and so it was a really diverse group of people. Totally. Indigenous, amazing. First Nation, yeah. mm. uh, yeah. small yoga groups. We had youth that were from, that attended from different uh, Buddhist organizations like Awake, uh, Awake Youth in Awake Brooklyn, Youth in Brooklyn oh, wow. with people of whole complete school systems, New York City Department of Education, okay. Mindfulness Division. I mean, so it was a serious cross section. And at the beginning, we let them know, just as we did in the planning, things will get uncomfortable. How do we stay in the room so we can get the information? What can we do? so we can actually work together across difference. If we can do it in here, then it can be carried out into other places. That's awesome, and Shrews, can you unpack that piece that you said, the distinction around, was it secularization versus and secularity? secularity? Anything that you could say about that, that? Right, the committee that worked on it came out with that. Um, and the sense that in this country, because of our history, you know, we have this separation of church and state which comes out of religious persecution in Europe and people came over here. So for us in this country, generally in many ways secularization means no religion. See, so this is this, you hear it coming up in this thing of should we have mindfulness in schools? Does it break that premise of 
separation of church and state. So this committee, which I really liked, is that they didn't come out with answers. They came out with questions. And one of the questions was, should we use the term secularity versus secularization? We don't think we want to create a field that has no spiritual tradition. We want a field that allows diverse traditions. And is this not what this country and the world is dealing with right now? How do we create a safe space, secularity, so that we can coexist? What would be the rules and the premises that we would come up with so that we can coexist and have difficult but very fruitful conversation? If we could dig, if we could go even a little deeper on this around this is because this is an issue that's coming up. I, I meet a lot of educators who are grappling with this around what you're naming around. Uh, does this mean just completely non-religious? Is this are we presenting teachings, but really in the backdrop we're just whispering to each other and saying this is really around Buddhist ethics? Can you can either of you talk about IBM generally, like how you think about? I realize this is a needle to thread. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, this has been a root conversation for Ivy Me since our inception. And so just to say our lineage um, or tradition is coming out of the Insight Meditation Society. So they first offered teen retreats in 89. And I actually went on my first teen retreat in 93. And then when I was 14. And then I went every year. And so and then some of those folks who were my mentors brought them to California and started teaching at Spirit Rock and through the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Just want to name that. That was the original California retreats which is another reason why the social justice aspect is so uh, embedded in, in our DNA as an organization. Um, so it's always been a part of what we're doing. And then, and then there's this huge moment where we had, we started retreats in Virginia, Southwest Virginia, which is a part of the Bible belt and people got involved in Southwest Virginia who wouldn't identify as Buddhist necessarily. And, uh, and so we had this like meeting in Oakland at the East Bay Meditation Center. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was like sitting around a circle and there were the California people and the Virginia people. And we like, it broke. We broke because the Virginia people were like, no, it needs to be quote unquote secular. But what we meant by that was ecumenical, open and accessible for people from all religions to be able to do a contemplative practice. And the California people were like, no, we're Buddhists. We're Buddhists. We're teaching Buddhist Dharma. That's what we are. And so we broke and um, the California retreat stopped happening after that for a couple of years. Virginia blossomed and then we started running the, and that's when we formed Inward Bound, the nonprofit. And we, then we started teaching Northern California. And one thing that's been really cool is since then, one of the most adamant people, those kind of know we're Buddhist, we can't be secular, that's losing something, has come around and said, oh, I get it. I get it. I get the idea of secularity and I get that um, the accessibility and I see that nothing has been diminished by opening and having a more accessible approach. I can remember having a conversation with J-Mo. It's like, um, oh, we should say people don't know oh, Jay. Could we just oh, say Jay Martin? Jay Mo is <laughs> Jessica Mori. We call her Jay Mo. That's sweet. That's so sweet. Yeah. Um, like, okay, look, I've got issues with this because I'm not Theravadan Buddhist. And, you know, aren't we really doing contemplative practices? And, and I really liked, she made me think about this. Like, but if we just water it all down, what is it? It can't just be this hodgepodge of everything. It has to define 
it has to hold its own integrity or we don't have anything to teach. And I think that's the tension in the conversation. Personally, just Sharice Minerva personally, believes that we have to understand there's contemplative practices from multiple cultures. Every culture in the world has their own contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we would respect other practices in the same way we would want other practices to respect mindfulness. And that, that there's this back and forth like, what's under the umbrella of mindfulness? What's under the umbrella of contemplative practices? But if we recognize that marginalized groups have contemplative practices, we're dealing with that matrix of oppression. Because that means your way is not the only way. There are other ways that are out there. And that's why, for me, going in and learning the community you are dealing with, that you are servicing, and going to them to, to uncover what's in your own history, what's there that you can share with me. And to me, that's secular secularity. Yeah, I, I also think that's f a cornerstone of trauma-sensitive practice. Um, in that, I've been having conversations with someone named Paula Ramirez, and Paula was doing basically mindfulness-based stress reduction work in her home of Colombia. She's from Bogota in Colombia, but was also doing work in South Sudan. And, you know, intense trauma. It was doing work around um, uh, landmine work in Colombia and reconciliation work. And actually had a call with some leadership of mindfulness-based stress reduction and said, it would be so inappropriate for me to be imposing the structure of the eight-week MBSR when there are so many practices embedded within this community. So what's that way to both, uh, what I hear you saying is how to, how to both offer in a ground and structured way, but then really be flexible enough to invite what are the, what is the wisdom that is already inherent? And then what are the problematic dynamics that can happen if there's an imposition of practices? And so there's, to me, I hear a lot of overlap here with some of the conversations I've been in around trauma-sensitive practice. Yes. We, and the, at the Ford convening, we had First Nation people from Walla Walla Tribe, which is in Washington State. Washington State. And it was interesting. They get up and talk like, we don't even know this word. But they offered us teachings that would be definitely under contemplative practices. So people are doing this like we're not doing anything new. Right. We're remembering what we forgot. So it's a collective human memory. How did it manifest itself? I think that's just way more exciting and just, wow, what will we find out? It'll unite us because we're all doing the same thing. We're just... We're coming at it from a different direction, but we're all going the same place, path. We're just coming to it from different roads. And what would you say, what uh, about this convenience? Sounds like there was a lot yeah. there. What, uh, how, now that you're on the other side of it, what are reflections about what worked, yeah. <laughs> what, what didn't? Or well, <laughs> we, let's see. I, I gotta say that I actually feel like so much more worked than I even allowed myself to hope actually i went into it kind of freaked out <laughs> <laughs> yeah i get it especially because we had this diverse steering committee and uh it was not easy it was one of those examples that i i got to see after the fact of like wisdom doesn't actually come 
from consensus. Wisdom comes from the friction between perspectives. And then what, what do you do then when you don't, no one overpowers the other one. So, uh, yeah, there's so it was, a, it was probably the most challenging project I've ever been involved in, in terms of the planning process. Um, cause it, cause it was so much time, so much conversation, so much. And I'm like, I just fast, like make a decision, let's go. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I get to be like, oh, that's why. <laughs> like Jess, <laughs> that was useful. Um, so, but some of the, let's see, I, I, some of the things that struck me, I'm probably just coming from my cultural perspective and that Charisse was really emphasizing and is important in IBME is like, is the culture creation and the community creation. So we mixed in, we did this culture share, bring an object and tell a story about your culture. And we mix that in all throughout the day. And then we also were mixing in um, some music and dance, some drumming, some uh, storytelling. And it was all like 15 minutes here. And it was an- that was another debate. I was like, well, Cherise, that goes at this part of the day. And Cherise was <laughs> like, no, <laughs> that goes throughout the day. <laughs> and it was like, and so then what I got to see, because then I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh, we're not going to have enough time for the committees. And the committees have to do things. And we have to come out with something important so we can show the Ford Foundation. You know, this paper. Measurables. And yes, like, yeah. exactly. And so I was like, but we take all this time, like, talking about our culture. How are we going to get the stuff done? Right, right. And so and and so I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm not in charge here. I'm in the collaboration. So we did that. And what I got to see that was amazing was because we spent the time do, do, dropping into the heart and the connection, the community, when we went into the small groups and did the quote-unquote work, it was, we got so much done. It was like, you would not believe when we all came back together and presented, we only met like four times as a group over two days, came back and we had to present on what does secularity mean? How do you do funding in a way that's like, has social justice? How do you, what's best practices within, uh, what does social justice even mean? And what is this intersection with mindfulness? And what does equity mean? In each group, it was like blown away with the amount of depth and clarity that they came to. So I am really excited to write the paper. <laughs> share the Are you writing a paper? Are you going yes. to report? Yeah, report, yeah, report back. that oh, we'll okay. share. Yeah. We're li- looking mm-hmm. forward to that. But I guess like I was just blown away, and I was like, "Wow!" It's that whole thing of like, if you want to go far, go together. Okay. Mm. And it felt right. that mm-hmm. and we went f- together, right? And the function of art and community and work we have to do, and cultures all over the world do that. If I'm going to go to war, I have a party the night before. There's a gathering. There's always this community thing that happens b- before you interweave it. And by having that community, you know, you sit and you do difficult conversations and topics and those knots, they just gathering your spirit. Mm-hmm. But you dance together, it flushes. And I realize in a nonverbal way, we are one, we are connected. So then I can go back into the work with you the next time we have to talk. Oh, it's interesting. I'd love to get your take on this. So um, one of the conversations we had yesterday was around the power of social emotional learning in trauma-sensitive mindfulness, or just mindfulness generally, I think, and having people, one of the moments where you have people turn towards each other or you're doing work. And on your point, Cherise, when I was in, I was in South Africa a couple months ago with Rhonda McGee, who was just on the podcast, and you both know. And the, there was a woman there named Pumla Gabodo Madikizela. And do you, do you know Pumla? Pumla did work around 
Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, she was, I think, one of the heads of the of the, the commission, and she's done a lot of work around trauma over years. And one of her research, to your point, one of the findings in her research was that communities that came together after an assassination or an act of violence that was happening during apartheid, those that came together and did some kind of collective practice, whether it was sitting, but more often movement, drumming, dancing, had less less community violence following the event. It processed it through. I mean, it's, it's she, for those that are interested, her work is amazing. I can try to link it. But I'm that seems to speak to what you're saying here of the power of coming together as a community. When I got here the first night, I, I walked by your room of seeing all the teachers, and then all of a sudden I heard dancing. And I thought, wow, this is really different from where I spent time in, in, my, in mindfulness. <laughs> so anyway, I get excited about how you all think. I'm curious how you're all thinking about relationship, community, communal practice, trauma, and teachers, and how, you, how you're thinking about that in IBME. In my work, that's what I do. I'm, I'm a community builder, I would say that. I design programs to strengthen and build communities, and I work a lot with marginalized communities. I live in Virginia, the Bible Belt, and bringing together different, diverse communities, and we can't necessarily talk. It's just not gonna happen. But we can sing together, we can dance together, we can drum together, and then we realize we're a community. You can literally create community. And once you create it, then you can speak. Mm -hmm. And I just think collectively around the world, we've gotten so into this technology, logos, tradition of words and objects that we've all forgotten our own roots, all of us, all of us, and that we need to reattach now. And this building community is a crucial, crucial, crucial component that all of us need to go back to, and it's free. You don't even have to purchase it. You just gotta go ask your grandmother, you know? So that's why it's so important. It's so subtle that it's not way up there in some marker. That's why we're missing it. So the elders come back, which I'm an older person, you come back, hey guys, you forgot something, come and sit on grandma's knee, let me tell you a story. Let's make up a story. Yeah, that's, it's crucially important. And so maybe I'll kind of bring in <laughs> the she like giggles. Sci scientific <laughs> part. I mean, this this yeah. is what I think is most important. What Teresa is saying, and um, but then when I started to learn about trauma, and I did somatic experiencing training as I was becoming a teacher, and um, so a few of the things like social engagement, one of the best that Peter Levine talks about is like one of the main ways that we navigate uh, trauma is through social engagement after a difficult situation, and that um, causes resilience against PTSD. The social engagement and so um like on all these things that we're doing are social engagement and on teen retreat there's a ton of social engagement the small group deep listening keep speaking that all that kind of element and then then i guess i would also say in terms of the dance and the movement so it's a social engagement but it's also a movement and then we also know around trauma a lot of it is that you need to actually move the body and, and move that uh stuck the energy so that it doesn't become stuck into somaticized trauma over time. So the dance, the play, the, the 
sports, like all of those elements that we do are another way. And we go between, you know, you sit and, and you're watching your breath, wa- noticing all these emotions come up. And then, and then the next thing you do is you go outside and you run around or you do a dance. So it's like, it's getting that, it's getting that movement on both levels. Yeah. yeah. As well with the culture shares, you can see people's hearts open up. I, you know, and um, a teacher got up, they're a high school teacher and they had struggled. We have this instruction. We want you to bring something that shows your community, a personification of you and share it with us, give us the story. And this teacher was saying, oh my gosh, I got that assignment. It's like, no, I can't do this, I don't know. They brought in a mirror and on the back of the mirror, they put the picture of their children and their class that just graduated. And as he was talking, you saw just his life just open up. And you know, you could just look at this guy and go, yeah, yeah, that's just another guy. But that person standing there telling that story, everyone resonated with the story. So if you didn't have the story, you wouldn't be able to see into that person's heart. And I, I went and I looked at the mirror because I wanted to see what did his class look like? What did his children look like? And he told us he walks up to students and he goes, you want to see, want to see something amazing? And then he puts the mirror up in front of their face so they'll see themselves. And I'm like, I have got to try that. So look, I got a tip yeah. just from somebody sharing. So I feel like every time somebody shares, you shared about the acorn. Every time it, it seems the group drops deeper and deeper. It's like you feel it each time we, there's a community bond that forms, so now we can do the work. So we're gonna do an equity and interdependence workshop, which is difficult work. But because we've been doing all of this community engagement, I think the community trusts itself more. If we just brought it in and let's do it, I think it's harder. And so, yeah, so maybe to say like what, what I hear you're saying is a sense of we're building trust and togetherness and safety. That's what that, like that work does that. So then, and so also when you think about, and you've talked about it and when you talk about your own experience on retreat, and I certainly had this, uh, it's, we're, for many of us being silent and going into our heart, own hearts and minds and bodies is like the darkest, scariest place mm. to be. And if we don't have a kind of nervous system, visceral sense of safety, the body's not gonna do that. The, the fist is not gonna open. And so what we're doing with this is creating a sense of support, safety, connection, so that the fist can, can open and that we can see more of like what's actually happening in the heart-mind. I think, to me, it's like central. And I've seen that in my own practice. Like uh, Sometimes I go even deeper into insight when I'm not being totally silent, like on a silent retreat, because of that sense of safety. I'm wondering if either if you could um, talk about what you've learned specifically around teens. Mm-hmm. And one of the things coming out of this conversation is just with your time in, the hard-won lessons that you've learned over time. And I mean, Sharice, you brought this up yesterday and I thought it was so powerful around what is the way to enter into a conversation with a youth to and, and to not shame them or to not have them feel like there's some kind of power over thing happening and um, 
and particularly this is around trauma of saying, Hey, I noticed that you were maybe struggling. Can I talk to you? And you're saying, well, that would be, that would you know pick me up if I was a youth. And so I'm wondering, this is a, if, if either of you could talk to listeners who may not know as much about in particular working with teens around this intersection that you're all at around community, trauma, mindfulness, and how you, what you've learned over the years. I'm sure JMO can give way more depth to this, but, I want to say that to me, that's one of the central core principles of Ivy Me, is combating ageism, nice, and bringing that equanimity into the room with teens. And age, ageism, just for folks who don't know, it, like that that we prioritize adults. Okay, got the it. The hierarchy, the power structure of adult over youth. Got it. And we're all so ingrained with it. You can't say it doesn't function. That's the way we've grown up. That's what I like the example in your book about the military, that when the officer comes in the room, everybody stands up. If Oprah Winfrey appears, everybody gets, it's just the function. So we work to reduce that ageism and being constantly that mindful awareness that this structure is in place. So when we're in the room with teens, when I'm dealing with teens, always trying to shift that power, the intention of we share power. I do not have power over you. We share power together. And that's one of the major comments that teens give in feedback. I've never been around adults and felt so respected. Yes, which means like if they're triggering you, you have to be aware that you're being triggered. And what are your actions as a result of that, and what, maybe you need to call in a different team member and go, look, I need you to deal with this person because they're just really triggering me and I don't think I can be an effective mentor for them right now. Listening to what they have to say, not doing leading questions trying to give them wisdom, trusting they have the wisdom within themselves. And right now, aren't the youth the ones that are really teaching us? Yeah, look at what happened in Florida. And those students that, I mean, every major movement, if you think about it, is generally led by youth. So we work to empower them. I want to hear what they have to say. So I'm supporting so I can get them the voice. And it takes a while. There, you can keep, I want to hear what you say. Let's play a game where you, you get to pick the question. And, and you can see they're like, really? Really? You don't really, they, they test and test waiting for you not to be true. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, as they realize, you are really modeling that I really do want to know what you're saying, they start to speak. We did a, um, in Colorado, we just did a teen retreat in Boulder, and we have something called Wisdom Talks, where the teachers you know, tell about their life or some subject, and Kara, Lie. Lie. Cara Lie. She did a talk. She's a counselor, but she says what she's witnessed is that youth really are looking for elders, and the elders are not there, and they need that support. So she, she gave a talk about that. And so then I was the next night, so you, you have to build on each other. And uh, in Cara's talk, she was saying that the things that you are emotionally triggered by actually may be your signals for the work you have to do. So that turning in, and so that, that non-shaming of it. So the next night, 
I did a talk on my experience of going through obstacles, et cetera, in civil rights and just as a woman, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked them, so what are your passions? What, what gets your car? What just makes you angry? And so we just brainstorm all of them. Okay, let's turn it around. Let's make a manifesto. And they came up with 10 rules of the world that they wanted to see. And it was brilliant. And for the rest of the retreat, they kept talking about it. That was so powerful. That was, because why? Their voices were heard. And what they had to say taught me something. So it is this attitude of, I don't have to know everything as an adult. I really can trust a youth to teach me. I, I just want to say that one of the th I'm learning a lot from you around that it's the embodiment of the quote unquote leader or teacher that will build that container and the respect and the trust. Like you, you really to me embody a genuine curiosity, and that you're not going to impose. But even though it's attempting to have that checklist of things that will help support the structure, but if I if I keep hearing you right, it's like. No, it's, it's a deeper ethic and embodiment in the person who's holding the space that will actually allow that wisdom right. to really come forward. But you do have a checklist, because like, right, J-Mo's right. a checklist person. <laughs> I'm like the conceptual, but we need both. You need both. You need both. If that checklist isn't in place, you don't have the freedom to be creative around it. So it's not either or. That's right. That's the check, and that's the check, and the trauma sensor to mindfulness, we mm -hmm. talked about it yesterday, that, ch that, that dance and that mm -hmm. tension between the two is, it's sometimes hard to find, but. Yeah. Yeah, I just want, but I do want to say that that piece, um, it's like, it's, so then we come back to this word about authenticity. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to act like I'm curious about teenagers. <laughs> it's like, right. we actually, and so that's where our practice comes in. We got to be watching, watching, watching our own minds and seeing like, ooh, Ooh, there's a way that I think I actually know something I have to teach them and track that and check it, you know, and like, oh, I, ooh, I actually want them to show up in a certain way, <laughs> you know. Well, when thinks about also education, mm -hmm. kind of when, when, is, when is a mindfulness practice being used really to, for um, behavior yeah. yes. and to try to, yeah. um, what's the word I want to use here? Coerce? Uh, um, Coerce, yeah, it's this subtle, just a very subtle, am I using the mindfulness practice to be with what's actually there? Or if it's like, am I actually just frustrated as a teacher that f the kids are acting out right now? And so. So that is like, and then what we, and then we, we always teach in teams, like big teams, and then also the teaching teams always three to five people. And so we're also checking each other so that we can give that kind of feedback to our own blind spots and, and be feeling that out and giving support. So um, I think that is the primary thing. So when I walk into a room with teenager, I, I honestly believe that like this is an innate quality in them. I also, so this is a little Buddhist, but I think to myself, the Buddha is in the room, you know, and mm. maybe like I'm just getting to play a role in like in opening that up or reminding or awakening that so that they can go on to be the Buddha, right? And it's not like that's, that is actually the view that I take. And so um, I think there's something about that. But then I, I think there's, then there's this interesting place that I've been growing into. So I first started coming back and doing teen retreats when I was like uh, my 20s, my mid-20s. And so then there's a question of elder. So how do we hold the space of like you have so much wisdom inside of you and so much to offer the world and so much innovation, and yet there's a 
need and desire for guidance, for mentoring, for elders in their life. And so that's the other thing, because some of us can go to the far spectrum of like, I'm just like the kids have it all or oh, something. Right. And they right. don't want that right. either. Right. right. So they want us to be able to show up in an elder or mentoring role. And so that I think that that's a tension that we like have to grow into as well. And there's so much overlap. We talked about it yesterday with the trauma informed practice of how to hold a boundary and have the structure, but still leave people in choice. Yes. Yes. It's such yes. a, it's a dance right. and yes. it's an on, it's very dynamic. You can't, you can't just write a book on it. I mean, that's something we live into and we practice, which is why this feels like a path. So I'm, I'm hearing a lot of overlaps of what you're trying to instill in the teachers that you're working with and the teams that you have. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Any other, um, I, I just anything else that you would want folks to know either about you or about IBME or, um, yeah, anything that we're, we haven't talked about. Yeah. Maybe then I think one thing that, that comes up for me is another huge element for us is, um, nature and yes. the connection with the natural world. And, um, and so we haven't talked about that as much, but it's like totally interspersed. It's the same, there's the same dynamic. It's the same mental habits. It's the same conditioning in the ways that we relate to the natural world as we do to the human other uh, and in the forms of oppression that we have. And so we're also making that a big part of what we're doing. What's that relationship? Um, So every morning at this retreat, we have a sit spot and we started it from the first day where our morning meditation, a lot of times people, you go into the room and you sit. Um, Khalila had us, Khalila Legrand. Archer. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Edit that out. (laughs) Khalila Archer. (laughs) She took, go pick a spot and this is going to be your spot every day that you go sit in and watch the natural world. And then when we come back, and maybe it's been about 30 to 40 minutes we do that, and it was funny because the first day I closed my eyes and she gave us instructions, don't close your eyes. I want you to look <laughs> mm. and see what is going on around you. What, what life, our brothers and sisters in nature, what's going on there? And this morning as people even talked about it, like I'm watching an inchworm and I'm watching the inchworm look for its next thing to connect to and with such grace and I realized that's what's going on in my own life. That's what someone said. And it was just, you're watching this world, you're listening. And for me, I think it's interesting, the interface of the human world, because there's a highway near here. Mm-hmm. And you hear the traffic going, shh. And then you tweet, 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 tweet. And someone goes, did you see the elk? Did you see the da da da? And it's like, it's reconnecting us. And it's, it's grounding in this sense that we too are the earth. And that, to me, has always been a, a, I don't want to say byproduct, but part of mindfulness practice, there's somehow you realize that you're part of this greater world. Through, through meditation, it becomes apparent. But then when you intentionally put the sit spot or put this awareness of nature in there, it just expands it. And this awareness of the interconnection between us becomes so apparent. I'm so glad you brought this in, and it's not something that I've spent a lot of time either writing or talking about around nature, and yet in my trauma training, just to what you said, Sharice, that this comes up a lot around 
the fundamental disconnection that happens with rhythm of the natural world that mm -hmm. I talk about it some in the book, but around uh, sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, when those when, when that balance falls out of whack, it really interrupts rhythms both internally but also externally and our ability to feel what's happening in the world around us, whether it's community, but I hear you taking it out mm -hmm. to a bigger level and that a big part of a healing process mm -hmm. is to actually start to remember that connection, but also with through senses. So this practice around opening your eyes, being outside versus needing to just go in and close one's eyes. Anyway, it's a, I'm realizing it's a domain that I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about, but it sounds like you all are mm -hmm. here with this group. That's fantastic. You need to come mm -hmm. hang out where I be. Could either of you talk about where, just as we're finishing, uh, where did that, um, who in, who's inspired you there or um, who do you look in to nature? as mentor? Um, yeah, I mean, where did you, uh, what was your inspiration to yeah. bring this in? Yeah. Or Well, again, it's similar to the, to the social justice aspect and the Peace Fellowship. And there's a way that the nature aspect is a part of our DNA in terms of the people who've been involved from the very beginning. So my degrees are actually in environmental engineering, sustainable development, and natural resource management. So my career was all in climate change policy and finance. Like my childhood nickname was Save a Tree. Before JMO, it was Save a Tree. <laughs> Save a tree. <laughs> like here comes Save a Tree? Yeah. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> From like seven years old. So that's wow. like been a major thread of my life. But then what was so cool is coming to Ivy Me, Joe Klein, Patrick Cook Deegan, Kalila Archer, some of the main people in our community and organization are wilderness educators, uh, outdoor mm -hmm. enthusiasts. So it's just been a natural part of it. And we've even done wilderness retreats where we go backpacking and go. And so what's been cool about that is, you know, in many of the wilderness programs, there's a solo, but, but people have talked about like, okay, they put you in the solo and you have no idea what to do. And so we do this all at the end after we've been practicing contemplative practice and silence together. And so then it's like, so one thing you could do is you could meditate. <laughs> you could be mindful in your solo. You know, you could watch, notice when thoughts are arising, notice what emotions are there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'd say that that's a big part of it. And now just to say in terms of our teacher training, um, one of our main texts is by Bill Plotkin, Nature and the Human Soul, uh, which is a, dense book <laughs> but, but excellent mm -hmm. totally excellent beautiful and so he's framing the human development the treachery of human development both in a culture aspect and a nature aspect that you need to learn and develop at each stage um and he's really focused on adolescence and basically names our society in in a patho adolescence and it makes perfect sense and it's just like so he is with that book it's just like it's similar to your book like when we read it we're like oh yeah Oh, great. He wrote it down, you know? So there's a way it felt like, oh, he wrote it down. So now we, people can read it. And yes. so he, he's saying you have to have nature to actually develop as a human in community in a healthy way. You need the nature element. So, so that's a central book that we're working with. That's and great. the lessons come yeah. from nature. Mm -hmm. If you, if yes. you want answers, right. look to nature. So it's, it's, it's taking that veil off of our vision so we can see the lessons that are already there. It's almost like we're at this time that w the answers are all around us. We just haven't been paying attention. And mindfulness and contemplative practices allows us to pay attention. Mm. Totally. Mm. 
Well, that seems like a good note. Um, thank you both so much for your leadership here in, in this community um, and in our moment right now um, for what's needed. So, And thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thanks for yeah. having us. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I want to thank Sharice and Jess once again for coming on the podcast and also to all of you for listening. If you have any suggestions or recommendations of people you'd like us to talk to or topics you think we should cover, feel free to write us directly from the address that's on my website. It's support at davidtrelevin.com. And if you'd like to receive updates about the podcast and also um, other announcements about the trauma-sensitive mindfulness community, you can go onto my website at davidtrelevin.com and you can register for updates there. Thanks again for being here and looking forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.